Hello, and welcome to episode 322 of the Creighton Crowbar, a PC gaming... Ah, <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. A PC gaming podcast being broadcast to you, being recorded on the 7th of May, 2020. My name's Marsh Davis, and I'm joined this evening by Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm completely topless. And Thomas Orkbane. Hello. I love that having having had a false start to this podcast, we've now forgotten how how it how it do how it worked. Yeah. Uh, I have to apologise for that false start. I really am uh, completely uh, topless. Uh, this is the first time I've ever recorded a podcast without a shirt on. Uh, you'll be excited to know. Week six mm-hmm. lockdown. Um, the, the reason being is very very warm. Um, but I ruined the first attempt to start this podcast because I. Uh, took my t-shirt off and by take in taking my t-shirt off i realized well i if i'm going to have my t-shirt off i want to make sure no one can see me and obviously we're not doing this with any kind of webcam we're just obviously it's just audio um but i did have a webcam plugged in because i just got out of uh, my mum's 64th birthday zoom call where i would stress i was wearing a shirt and um and i so i decided to unplug the webcam just in case hackers um were to access it and see see my nipples um, oh, no. and and so what i did is i reached down and i yanked out the usb cable um for my webcam only to realize that i had in fact yanked out the usb cable for my microphone instead um, <laughs> so <laughs> and left the webcam plugged in this ironically caused the uh, audio recording that we're using uh to default to the uh, microphone in my webcam i don't know if that would be sufficient to actually switch it on but basically long story short it's my fault i'm sorry that's okay. What's happened news-wise this week? There's been a Xbox thing. We saw some games. We saw a bit more of Valhalla, uh, the uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. You had a good name for that, Chris. Uh, Assmead. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, but we didn't really see that much more of it than we saw in its unveiling. I don't think we can extrapolate a great deal from it. I think it's. I wasn't here on the pod last week. Any of us were, where I believe the the initial unveiling of the game was discussed. I do. I, I am obviously interested in it um, because I like Odyssey a lot, and you know they they're good at making that game that they make. Um, I have to say, I think uh, obviously it's not. Odyssey was by far from the first game to you know take control of of ancient Greece and 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 plug it into a video game formula, but. I don't know why, but for me, Vikings feel quite overplayed at the moment, um, sort of pop culturally, uh, and and without a really substantial departure from the kind of traditional tropes of those stories, it is immediately slightly less interesting to me. Uh, I appreciate some people just, just love it and want to see more of it, but one thing I thought was noticeable is like like the Siege gameplay they, they sort of implied in the minute and a half trailer that came out today. Mm. Um, even that looked like for honor a different ubisoft game about vikings and other forms of night um you know smashing each other to bits and you know then there's all the, the air you know the shadows of god of war and hellblade particularly which is almost certainly like which is kind of hard to beat i think is the most interesting use of um mm. that material and that folklore in games recently i think it's just quite tough for a, for, a, for a game for a viking game to differentiate itself yeah, I don't think it's going to have. I don't think it's going to have any substantial problems uh, overcoming that because the the rea- reaction to it seems to have been quite rapturous. I mean, I mean, I don't think maybe maybe there's only um, 
maybe this is just me then. I, I, I think... No, I, I do kind of agree. It's, uh, but I, I don't think that's. I think the fact that it, Vikings are overplayed in culture are one of the reasons they've <laughs> they've gone straight for it. Um, it's obviously um, obviously shifts units. I think probably the old yeah. Vikings. I think it's it's interesting though because it's like I think Assassin's Creed has always had this one of its strengths has been that it is capable of going to parts of history that games don't traditionally touch, yes. like the Renaissance or the American Civil War or um, sorry War of Independence. Um, or, um, or even, you know, the crusades necessarily wasn't, wasn't, you know, mm. I'm not saying explored it with particular nuance, but, you know, between, you know, obviously the last three from origins to odyssey to, to this, it feels like we're very kind of robustly in the traditional circuit of world myth. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, I mean, my sense from this is that it's actually going to lean further into uh fiction than perhaps even other assassin's creeds have mm. and that's saying you know saying something since you know you fought the pope and, and, <laughs> and became a space wizard in one of them but um and atlantis was there yeah i mean obviously there <laughs> yeah i mean there, there are the sci-fi sort of uh dalliances in the series as always but i'm thinking about how much we actually know about dark age Britain and that there's really not that much and um one of the striking things about this is that you seem to be assaulting large partly stone fortresses yeah. which seem which are basically an invention of a later age that have been transposed onto the dark ages in fact one of the reasons we don't know much about the dark ages is because everything was built out of fucking wood um and if you look at the kind of recreations of palaces from that time they are wooden huts <laughs> you know right yeah uh, and that would not be a great thing to climb up because it would take you you'd just like leap onto the top and that would be it i feel um, like yeah it feels like they i mean i uh, i think we were talking about this separately from the pod and i think alex made the point that it has the very strong vibe of the vikings tv show which i haven't seen mm. um but i well uh, but i'm sort of aware of enough from from other material that this kind of um I th- well, maybe to put it a different way, it feels like they need to reposition the kind of the traditional Assassin's Creed moral divide between a kind of, you know, sort of salt of the earth revolutionary group and some sort of urbane cultists or, uh, you know, sort of um, aristocratic Templarish um, conspirators uh, and re re recontextualize that in each new game and it that was the vibe i got from the reveal trailer is that that's what they wanted the english monarchy to be that they they kind of import what feels i agree feels like a much later version of uh the english aristocracy from like post-norman conquest england um in order to kind of fulfill that familiar role of the kind of conniving um slightly effete uh british villain um to be toppled by a kind of hearty muscular uh hero or heroine to their credit yeah. and at that yeah that sort of i think i think obviously you and i both have an academic interest in in that period and the literature of that period i think i i i certainly watched that reveal watching a lot of like interesting material you know watch on by basically mm. um but the I don't know if that was ever necessarily on the cards, right? That yeah. we'd be getting, you know, more realistically rendered Saxons. 
I suspect there will be, it won't be quite as black and white as the uh, this first trailer suggests. It makes the Vikings out to be analoid good guys and it makes wh whichever king you are uh, opposed against there to be a very bad man because he writes war on a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> but I suspect that, because um, you know, England at that time wasn't wasn't really England, and there'll be multiple factions that you'll you'll probably ally against on both uh, both the side of the inhabitants of these isles, and also among other Norse invaders. Um, but, uh, but just because I, I expect that they're going to go into the faction system a, a, a little bit more in depth in this one, since there seems to be an opportunity to do so. But I do think, going back to what you were saying about how the series has historically explored more interesting places mm. that you don't see in, in Western fiction as much. This does, I mean, to go to England at this time is to go to the least important place that this entire series has ever visited at that time. <laughs> and no, I, I'm not I'm not doing down our country particularly, but if you think about it, you know, uh, Egypt, was uh, was a hugely important place for the entirety of the Roman right. Empire, you know. Uh, all of these games, and, you know, obviously the, the the Greek Empire was one of the major powers in the world at that time, and and established as democracy as we know it, etc. Uh, even Philadelphia, you know, it, it's it's the beginning of a of a a, a new age basically in, in in the in the new world, and. And then yeah. <laughs> what? Just this fucking little swampy shithole that nobody could really be bothered to invade and keep hold of because it was just too much bother. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you get to go I, to Stonehenge Marsh. Yeah, and I'm no, I'm I'm excited. Of, I'm excited to do all the old Dark Age shit. But I like, I yeah. feel like it still it still speaks to a certain kind of Western exceptionalism that mm -hmm. this that this place at this time is interesting. Like London, when they visited before, that there's a legitimate reason why. Mm powers global powers like the illuminati would be fighting over london at the time that they visit it there's literally no reason anybody would have any interest apart from to pillage <laughs> yeah know? right i mean i guess i guess the games have always followed sort of times of like uh, revolutionary change whether they're literally revolutions or not and that just isn't present really here you know it's it's there are certainly changes that take place but Nothing that is really significant in any kind of grand scheme of things that I can imagine the series would be interested in, except a lot of people from Scandinavia taking some other people's lunch money. That's, that's and 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 then yeah, and a lot of sad poetry about how much it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> what do you reckon, Tom? I think it's interesting. It seems like the game might be split between Scandinavia and England, especially based on the kind of key arts they use to reveal the entire game. Uh, which is, by the way, one of the most bizarre reveals I've ever seen. Um, and if you don't know how they did it, they just had an artist in Photoshop over the course of like three hours assemble the uh, the key art for the game, um, which showed on the left-hand side of the protagonist um, a quite a Skyrim-looking vision of Scandinavia that looked almost magical, and to the right, uh, some people fucking each other up on a plane in Britain somewhere. Um, so there might be kind of an interesting interplay between the cultures, um, depending on which... Yeah, which, which of those locations you actually kind of occupy? Um, also, like, is England that interesting geographically? I mean, I, I obviously I love it. I've hiked all around it, but from like a game sense, 
I'm not sure. Is this what I kind of felt about London in um, the previous game as well? That it just was to me wasn't an exciting place to explore. Really, it didn't feel. Maybe it's just because I was too familiar with it. Um, it's, it wasn't like, like an escapist fantasy. It was just like, okay, we'll go around these big wide streets and um, mm. don't do very much. Yeah, I don't know how they'll get this. Like, obviously, the, the, the Greek sort of, you know, like tangle of, of islands and, and peninsulas works really well for the kind of naval game, which does is implied to be back in this one. Um, if you're taking your long boat up and down the coast, but I'm not sure exactly how. I mean, they, they've shown some very dramatic made-up coastlines, and so maybe that'll just be their answer. It'll be, like, you know, super Essex turbo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does look very heightened, the the reality yeah. they're going for. Mm. Including, yeah, including the fact that it's 300 years later in England than it is everywhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure, okay. yeah. you're going to get to throw an axe in that game a lot. I think that's, oh, yeah. they showed that so much on a bet. If you hit a man in the head, it does double damage. And uh, that is a good thing. If you like the RPG side of Assassin's Creed in the recent games, it'll be, it'll be the torn on. Yeah, it'll be the signature ability of one particular tree. I guarantee it. Right. It'll be like there'll be three paths. One will be throwing axes at people. The other will be uh, shouting and your crow eating people's eyes. Nice. And then the other mm -hmm. one will be, I don't know, having a spear. That's my guess. For... <laughs> yeah. That's what me. did you um? What do you make of the uh, the other the other games on the Xbox slate? These are all the their not their first party games. These are all their partners' games that they were showing off today. On the yeah. Xbox X Series X, I, I can't X actually even X remember the name of the console. Xbox Series X. It was called Inside Xbox, but not that one. Series X, right? Was that the Hang thing on. we watched? I can't remember. Oh, I'm just trying to remember the name of the console. <laughs> um, yeah, well, anyway, that one, the next generation Xbox. Um, Scorn seemed to be some sort of Geiger-esque thing. Uh, all of the trailers seem to be not particularly from gameplay footage, bar a car game and Madden, um, mm. which re registered absolutely nothing <laughs> on, for me personally. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, that, yeah like, you know, maybe... I don't know where that decision necessarily gets made with how much they want to show and when, but it certainly wasn't like a presentation that gave room for a developer to show five minutes of, you know, continuous play or, or something like mm. that. It's very, you know, cinematic trailery. We talk about Scorn. Scorn is the uh, Geiger-y, very HR Geiger horror game, which I have no idea what you do in it, but it's very dribbly. Mm. Yeah, that was, um, that was a big alien ding-dong. <laughs> and it uh, exuded a slick whitish substance, which is um, a bold, bold choice. I thought delicious. Uh, wasn't, wasn't that one of the family fun? Yeah, wasn't that one of the first trailers they they showed as well? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, I... New Yakuza games coming though to PC. That looks. Oh yeah. It's going to be turn based. New protagonist. New, new similar setting, but new characters. So I'm quite excited mm. about that. Is is it a new one or is it one that was already released on some released, other platform? I think it was released in Japan earlier this year, um, right? But has yet to come over. Uh, but I really yeah. know it's coming to PC until today. Turn-based combat. How, how I haven't played any of the Yakuza games, but my impression is that's quite a departure. Yeah, that's, that's, quite, so? that's quite different. Yeah, they um, did a kind of teaser uh, of it on April Fool's Day, I think, last year. So no one believed it. Everyone thought it was just like a mock-up. It turned out to be like a whole new Yakuza game they were making. Um, 
so that's fun that's good it's also uh there's madden 21 which is very strange given that there might probably not even be a american football season this year <laughs> depending on what yeah, you right uh, yeah so i guess you get to just sort of simulate the games on in that game and uh pretend there is <laughs> Didn't this happen as well with uh, like Mario and Sonic at the 2020 Olympics, where someone was like, you know, will they postpone it because the Olympics aren't going ahead? <laughs> and it's like, surely at that point you have to contend that Mario and Sonic weren't going to be at the actual <laughs> Olympics. Like, it's not less realistic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, yeah. People are looking for that Olympic action, then surely that's the, it gives them the alternative that they crave. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. This is no less of a fantasy world that the real Olympics aren't happening because <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there's Sonic also, is there. There's Corvs, which I think is supposed to be Chorus, <laughs> and this is a single-player space combat thing, uh, which claims to let you break reality, but it doesn't actually show what that means or how or why, and it just looks quite flashy. <laughs> and you, know. you can change the FOV in the menu. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What else was there? The Medium, which is a new game from—is it Bluebird who made uh, that Layers of Layers of Fear? Is it the painting madness, spook 'em up, walk 'em a thon? Mm. <laughs> um, none of those are real genre titles. Um, but the Medium, set in Poland, and it's spooky. And Vampire: The Masquerade, Bloodlines Two was shown, um, and that's something mm. saw that it looked quite quite janky, but it was very early. Um, but people love that universe, and also the original game is janky as well. Very so, janky. Yeah. yeah, very janky, and needed to be fixed by the community. So, uh, I mean, at least if it, if that ends up being the case, they'll be staying true to the tradition of the of that series. <laughs> um, second Extinction, Mutant Dinosaurs, Co-op Shooter. Cool, I guess. <laughs> uh, there's a game called... Um, what's it? Let me find it. Bright Memory Infinite. Oh, yes, yeah. I played Bright Memory. Right, so um, it's, it's, you can actually play a, a version of this uh, on Steam at the moment, and I think it's like, I think it was released as a sort of early access game, mm. uh, and uh, it's the the product supposedly of one person. I don't, can't, I have no idea how true that is, but uh, there is some controversy about it being a, a, a very short or truncated version of what mm. people believed, at least, that they were they were obtaining hmm. and so i wonder if this is like they made a bright memory in early access and then xbox came along <laughs> and said you want to make a real game uh and they they uh decided to move on from their early access game looks... or maybe that early access game will evolve into this it's not quite clear no it looks very it looks very pretty uh based on the trailer i'm just watching right now <laughs> yeah I, I found it quite hard to to get on with hmm. uh personally but it's 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 an interesting mix of first-person shooting and um, Devil May Cry-style swordplay, also from first-person. So you're sort of mm. juggling enemies and, and tossing them around, throwing down different kinds of time-warping effects as you dash around, and then you can either plug them with bullets or you can smash them up with your swords and there's a, a what are they called? Grappling hooks. There you go. How could I forget that? Um, amongst other things. So it's meant to be quite, quite agile, but I found at least... Um, maybe I wasn't playing it the right way. I was trying to use PC controls, and it did not seem particularly a happy combination of things to map onto a keyboard and mouse. But maybe if I'd been playing mm. with a, um, a control pad, it would be very different. Yeah, I think those. Have we have we run out of the games that were announced there? There's other ones I don't know much about. Scarlet Nexus, 
I don't remember which one that I was. I don't know which one that is either. And I don't oh, that was the one with the flowers, with the uh, flower monsters? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, which looked really cool. Mm. And then your generic uh, sort of anime protagonist rocks up and just hits him with the sword. Uh, and I lost interest, actually. <laughs> um, I think that's basically yeah. all it. Was a, it was a, an underwhelming sort of reveal, I, thought, I found. Lots of very short footage and nothing that felt revelatory or interesting or particularly next gen. And I think that next gen is going to struggle with this a lot because a lot of the improvements they've mentioned is stuff that's kind of built into stuff like the PS4 Pro, like 4K resolutions, HDR support and that kind of stuff. Um, and the, like the PS5, for example, is just really interested in making sounds really good, which is cool, but it's hard to kind of sell that yeah, um, right. to, to people. Um, I don't know what that means for pc games really <laughs> given the rtx cards are so powerful it feels like we'll actually at least be able to run these games quite well when they come out hmm. yeah it feels like it's going to be the maybe the least apparent generational shift mm. yet <laughs> you know like not to overhype it too much um, <laughs> <laughs> you'll barely notice it happened that's maybe one of the reasons for naming it the way that they have is it's hard to remember which console is which, mm -hmm. um, at which is not inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon also released their um, hero. Did it released it? They didn't release it. They revealed their. Uh, in fact, maybe they didn't even reveal it. Has it been revealed before? It I feel like it was revealed, revealed years and years ago. Yes, it was uh, a few years ago. Amazon revealed like a slate of games all at the same time. Right. Um, and one of them was this hero world. shooter. Yeah. 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 Although at the time, so this thing is, in, well, one thing's interesting, I'll obviously go on, but it wasn't necessarily revealed as a hero shooter, which is kind of notable, I think. It was yeah. revealed, this is Crucible, and it was revealed as a game that was primarily designed to be plugged into Twitch. Um, that it, it was a shooter, um, but the, yeah, that it, its primary selling point was its integra close integration with Twitch, which obviously Amazon mm. owns. I don't know what happened to that side of it necessarily. Hmm. It seems to have um, a mixture of PvE and PvP, from what I gather, as its as its main selling point. Three different modes. The the one I, at least the one I can recall um, seems to be you defeat uh, giant monsters and you steal their hearts, and the first one to steal three hearts from these monsters wins. And in a four v four team mode. Um, yeah. I, I find it difficult to know how good that sounds uh, just from the, the bold description and the mechanics, but I, I wasn't immediately won over by uh, the aesthetic of it, I have to say, which felt like I didn't really get a, a particularly evocative sense of the, the alien planet on which it appears to be set. Um, it, it seemed a lot like quite a lot of... <laughs> Alien planets, uh, yeah. sort of lush and globular, um, without <laughs> being especially kind of striking in any noticeable way. And also, the there's a, there seems to be a real formula now for creating characters in hero shooters. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the cute robot who looks a bit like Wally. There's the soldier who has no defining features apart from being a man with a gun. Uh, and then there's the one who is probably a fox for the people who like to think about having sex with animals. And then what else? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, 
Well, there's um, there is there's usually a young woman who makes robots and maybe has a robot yeah. arm. Oh. Um, uh, maybe she has. A, there's usually at least one ninja, mm. um, or uh, a samurai character. Just something there for the for the for the anime kids. Um, Probably a cowboy. Maybe a cowboy. Could be a cowboy. There's, could... there's, there's definitely a, a giant one with big arms. There's who a character has a gun. who is either Spawn, Batman, uh, Dracula, or one of them. Basically, a character that who who pays the kind of edgy tax on behalf of the game. Usually, uh, <laughs> he can turn into smoke. Oh, who else? Have yeah, <laughs> some kind of mystic healer. Where the it's 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 because it's science fiction. You're not going to have traditional magic healing. It's going to be something to do with meditating, like in the east, uh, because we're going to just you know we're going to we're going to uh, hoist those tropes wholesale. Um, so some kind of floating yogi, probably. I'm going to guess the whole gang. The whole gang. Excited. <laughs> so here is. Here is our thing, and I know that sounds a little bit glib because it's, it's like I mean, obviously, these are archetypes that work for people, uh, which is the reason they reoccur, and the uh, the reason the whole thing reoccurs because they're all things that that work for people. And I, I, when I see games like this, and obviously I've played Crucible, um, the vibe it immediately gave me was very similar to Paragon, um, the MOBA Epic made, the, the third person action MOBA that they made. Um, which is now very funny to consider they made because Fortnite wasn't taking off. Um, and then it did. <laughs> and then their, their Paragon went. Um, and the other big one is Battleborn. Um, and I think it's very hard to not look at this game and see echoes of Battleborn because Battleborn was the origin or the, the first time a company tried this thing. And that thing was, and I just pulled it up on the side while we were talking, you know, when Randy Pitchford, six years ago, went on Twitter to write that Battleborn is FPS, hobby-grade co-op campaign, genre-blended, multi-mode, competitive esports, meta-growth, choice, and epic Battleborn heroes. He meant that, right? Like, you wouldn't... That's mm -hmm. not a sentence that comes out of you if you're trying to lie to somebody. Um, uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe if you were Randy Pitchford, it is. But the but there's there was a real... I think a real investment in trying to make experiences that... Um, brought together everything that was popular at once. Every single individual idea that focus tests well, um, and try and make sense of it as a cohesive experience. And I just feel like this consistently leads games astray because it's like taking and so it's always talented teams. It's like taking a talented team and telling them to figure out how to get a tuna pasta bake into Star Wars. And like <laughs> those are two things I like a lot, but. And if you ask me about them individually, I will be happy and smile and spend money. But I, that is, and that is an interesting problem. Like, how do we combine the experience of eating a cheesy pasta bake and the experience of watching spaceships arrive to save other spaceships? But, and maybe it's possible to get halfway there, but no one, no one wants that. No one wants the synthesis of those two things. And then to try and build on a third thing. And if you combine those two things with my dog, and I, I don't understand why you've done this. And I think this is the issue these games can be. In, and then what you end up with is you look at it and you see maybe 10% of something you're interested in over there and another 10% over there, but it doesn't have a single um, obvious argument for it besides being an amalgamation of things you like. And that's why the original Battleborn tweet, I think, is so telling for this kind of hero shooter 
genre is you can't explain it quickly. You you can't say, oh, it's this. It's a, you know, this was interesting about what's changed with Crucible. Like, I don't know if it still has its Twitch integration stuff, but when, you know, that initial pitch is like Crucible is a, a, a multiplayer shooting game set on an alien planet that tightly integrates with Twitch, where the viewership dictates something about the, the way the action unfolds. That at least is like, oh, okay, it's an interesting experiment. It could not work at all. It could work brilliantly. I don't know, but there's something there. Where I think you inevitably end up after years and years of iterative development and very or very data-led development is FPS, hobby-grade co-op campaign, genre, blah, 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 blah. And that's the vibe I got from the footage of Crucible that I have seen. That, like, the data points were all present, but they don't, there's no single derived statement from them because that would require an editorial stance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, my confusion over what's actually in the in the three different modes is uh, sort of speaks to that. I think. What do you think of it, Tom? Mm. That's that's the noise I would make towards it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it reminds me weirdly of the um, the Marvel Avengers game that uh, they sort of have revealed several times, but no one still yeah. understands what it is, and it is trying to be uh, a kind of almost a destiny structure of where you have. If you like a bit of single player, you've got a bit of that. If you like a bit of multiplayer, there's sort of modes for that. Co-op is there too. Um, and I don't think many studios could pull that off without at least one or two of those elements being duff to the extent that most players right. won't be interested in them. Uh, and it's it, trying to be everything to everyone is just a, it obviously paid off for Overwatch to an extent. But I think that's a lot to, to do with um, Blizzard's knowledge about certain types of archetypes and art styles that have mass appeal um and their ability also to ship stuff in china um, and also yeah and also i think you know Overwatch's case is an interesting comparison because it, it they stripped out all of the bigger game they were trying to make right like yeah. they determined that titan wasn't going to work but that its multiplayer mode would which is kind of interesting in this light and now like overwatch 2 is going to put some of that stuff back in it's just a it's a weird way to work. <laughs> we'll see how see how it goes. They're gonna add like I think they're gonna plan to add single player content and more co-op stuff to it. Um, yeah, right. And at that point, what does the two even mean? Like, why not just to say it's a live game? I guess Destiny turned into Destiny two, and so yeah, I guess that's kind of a new genre, really. That living game that keeps on growing, getting wider and wider, like Warframe mm. um, games like that. It feels like they can get away with it with Overwatch two because the the the, the marketing has been done the audience has been created mm. there are people who really really want that now but it's very very hard to come out of the gate with something that broad i think and yeah not, like and 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 not meet with a, a muted response like i mean and the thing is about this is like i don't think it's a it's i feel like it's it's never on the individual devs and that's the thing i always keep returning to with this like because all of the challenges involved are really interesting like it's still and that's what i find interesting like i really hope it works i would love to be wrong but like the challenge of like how do we make these guns feel good how do we make these characters read well how do we make um you know these these this monster ai fun to engage with in a multiplayer context these are all interesting ideas that really occupy people for long periods of time at a stretch without necessarily realizing that what these add up to in aggregate is not like a, a, a question anyone was asking or a problem anyone had in terms of an absence in anyone's kind of slate of games to play. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if the average player's tastes are really f for different 
genres are really that broad. I think like mm. it's, it's it's easy to for us to sit here as people in the industry and say, oh, we generalists, we love to play a bit of everything and see what it's like. But I think some people just like what they like and they like a bit of multiplayer, which is where Valorant is a good kind of pitch right, because yeah. like, hey here's one thing this game's going to do for you and uh, if you like this sort of thing this is for you um and that is much a stronger thing from a market marketing perspective almost to put out into the world than your hobby grade we're trying to do everything for everyone but most of it probably will be, won't be for you actually if you like this sort of game um yeah right it's like i, I feel like over the last couple of years that breadth seeking breadth has been ex- in that way has been exposed as a trap mm. and like this is one of those like prove me wrong memes but like i don't think i mean there are there are games with kind of you know that amount of uh breadth in terms of mmos and things but not quite in the same way like none of these games that have chased the sort of league of legends crown the fortnite crown all at the same time have achieved any of those things right mm-hmm. um really interesting to see see what the the reception is like because obviously it's also the flip side is it's going to be releasing into a time where people these kinds of games service games are they were already having a moment and that moment has only gotten bigger like now is the best time in the world to, to operate and launch a play all day service game because it is the summer holidays all day every day in every country in the world and that's kind of not a joke that's a real industry shaping force Sure. Um, like, um, on the flip side, uh, you've got to make a strong case for for what the game is and what it does differently. And I haven't it's really seen that yet. So, it's an increasingly crowded so, yeah. field as well. It feels mm-hmm. like, especially it's like the MMO thing where they de- demand so much time from you. You get to play one. Right. So uh, the potential audience sort of self selects into one of those games. And that they don't deviate probably from that. So if you're a WoW player, you might dabble with other MMOs, but that's where your community is, and that's where you want to stay, um, and that's where you want to raid. And that's different from something like Rainbow Six Siege, for example, where mm. loads of people like shooters, and they might just want to play your shooter for a bit. And it's actually it has a mass appeal, even though it's actually quite a very technical, difficult game. It's just kind of fascinating to see how companies are trying to navigate this idea yeah. of a service game in different ways. Um, and I think, like, I'd especially think of stuff like Anthem. I was about to mention it, Anthem, yeah. Yeah, just so, which actually, like, I think there's loads of stuff in Anthem that had potential. Uh, I actually really enjoyed the kind of way the world looked, flying around, the kind of the aesthetic of it, the robots, uh, sort of the mech suits. Um, but it was such a kind of limp attempt to make five games <laughs> in one. And I just, I think only certain studios fluke it in that way. I guess if you get one, you make billions and maybe that's that that's that might be the thinking behind it whereas if we if we crack this we've got a game that will last for 10 years which is constantly bringing mm. money mm. i i do my kind of hot take i guess maybe it's a too hot to take and I, my shirt's already off so i've got nowhere else to go except trousers <laughs> at this point um is is that i also suspect and i mentioned i suggested that earlier but i i do think that the relationship between um tech culture in the US, uh, particularly uh, uh, like non-gaming tech culture and data-driven kind of design as it is applied to video games is kind of at the root of a bunch of this. Like, mm. I think, I think, I think there is a incompatible, like, um, uh, the way I put it is this, um, tradi- like sort of startup tech culture and, and various kinds of like 
the big tech companies, any of them you could name, tend to build their business around making systems more and more efficient, identifying user need, whether that's buying something more quickly or getting from A to B quicker and, and more painlessly or getting takeout easier, and then refining that until it's as, as easy as, as, and as user-friendly as possible from a UX point of view, from a transaction point of view, uh, regardless of kind of how that intersects with I mean, you see this all the time with companies like Uber, where you know, if the, the goal of efficiency, the pure goal of efficiency collides with local bylaws and customs uh, in in ways that can be quite messy uh, because there's this ideology that the data really can't be wrong and that you can always follow the need. And there's, I think, often a lack of broad understanding of how those needs are shaped and how the data, you know, how data is flawed in, in a lot of ways and how uh, you can't simply make decisions on that basis. And I think a lot of these kinds of service games, and I, th I think this is not to say the data and and you know um, taking data from player base and can't be tremendously useful to making games, but I think it is of limited use for ideation. Like I think it is of limited use for the point in game development where you are concepting what it is you want to make. I think that is always a point where there has to be a degree of authorship and intent. And I think you know when we started talking about. Uh, Crucible is kind of what we answered, right? Like that we can rattle off the list of, of tropes that are represented in its character designs, which will have all been through multiple phases of iteration, both with legitimately talented artists and, and concept people, and also uh, in terms of all the other kind of goals those things need to hit. I just think it tends to result in anodyne stuff that doesn't really solve the problem for anybody because no one gives a shit if the app that gets you your takeout faster you know, uh, looks functional or is just a bit driver. You want it to work. You don't. You, you don't need your entertainment to just work or to <laughs> technically tick all the boxes for you. But I think that's often how this is approached. Like the notion that people experience any art or entertainment like that, where it's like, well, I, I saw a I saw a raccoon, man. So I have had a good time tonight. Um, like I'm just not. Con I'm just. I'm just not convinced. I, I say this knowing that you put a big spaceship in something, and I go, mm, yeah, I enjoyed this. Six out of ten, at least. Um, but you know, maybe we've all got that. But like the broader point, I think is 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 right that people experience things as a big messy, you know, holistic uh, whole, not as individually, you know, honed um, points of data that can be, you know. Uh, objectively assessed as fun by the average player because the average player doesn't exist we're all fucking weirdos and rant <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's also um that the, the uh, a publisher or a developer's objectives will often be different to players objectives when it comes to especially like big budget games right. like I, I, is a business trying to just cultivate like long period of engagement because they either could then use that platform to market further stuff, or do they want to do a 15-hour game that will get big sales in the first month and give you a boost in that quarter? Like, there's, I think these things also motivate design in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Not to say that it's going down and saying, do this, though they like in this specific way. Though it sounds like with Anthem, that certainly happened in some ways, according to uh, Jason Shrew's excellent Kotaku mm -hmm. uh, postmortem on it. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 again, it's the classic kind of clash between, um, creativity and wanting to have authorial direction and create something that's actually really kind of meaningfully special in some way, actually says something about the world or actually is just a really great genre piece of entertainment for, and that, that coming up against corporate, uh, kind of just financial needs, uh, and, and the need to actually just make money and survive as a, a developer. 
Yeah, I think it's 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 yeah, it's interesting that though because I don't think I think the last couple of years of every business probably has proved that there's no real such thing as a sure bet. Like no. you can't you like you know if it you can't follow you know the pop current popular thing into into guaranteed success unless maybe one of the only mechanisms by which this is the case is identifying what is currently uh popular and not available in as a free-to-play game and then making the free version mm. that's or the mobile version those are the probably the easy to pull not easy but you know most rewarding levers in the industry um answering those problems but but then you know you, that is a limited pool as well like that is a not something you can necessarily pitch for I feel bad a little bit for 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 what feels like Donkey Kong Crucible after you know a very a, a scant reveal of, of information so far. So uh, hopefully this is taken as my concerns mm. about that genre as a whole rather than the specific game. I because, think we use that as a yeah. springboard rather than actually it wasn't specifically about that game. It's about just sort of yeah, the general right. state of these attempts from uh, businesses I think, to actually create this. I think it would be very notable if it if it isn't a success. I think it would be very notable, and I think it should be a sign that that is a dead end. Because the question would be resources, right? Like marketing resources, being able to reach players, being able to invest in development in the game. I suspect Amazon has those resources. I don't think that's going to be too wild an <laughs> assumption. Sure. And so if they if they can't make it work with those resources, then I think any any person in game publishing right now looking at similar projects should have a really serious look at why they're trying to take on that kind of white whale. It's interesting because uh, Amazon is also making um, New World, which is mm. looks like a relatively traditional MMO of all the things to try and make in uh, 2020. That seems like a bold thing to do. But again, they've got the resources and if they can be the next sort of next wow, that's still a pot of gold that people chase. Yeah. Do you think the fact it's releasing on Steam is of significance? Crucible this is. In that the other the other big uh, sh shooters of this kind are locked behind uh, Blizzard's proprietary launcher and and such. I mean, Fortnite's technically locked behind the Epic launcher, right? And it hasn't yeah. hurt it. I suppose that would, that would be interesting. Like, if that was sufficient for it to become a success, then that would indicate that the size of the never Epic Store crowd is actually substantial. I suspect it mm. isn't. Yeah. You know, like as as loud as it, it can, as loud a voice as it can be on Reddit. Like I don't think that's a meaningful number of players, but yeah, interesting. We'll find out in thirteen days. We will, and the takes will flow. Thomas, do no. you have any other takes about games that have already been released that you have played? I've been playing loads of old games. Um, well, not that old, I suppose, but games that we've already talked about on the Great and Crowbar. So I'm struggling to think of new angles on them, really. But uh, I've been playing uh, Middle Earth Shadow of War, which is the second of the Middle mm. Earth games. And I don't think there will ever be another one. Uh, really? I'm not sure. I don't. I just think it's such a mashup of systems, which is what I enjoy about it, actually. That it has these regional single-player quest lines that you follow through, uh, but it's actually all built on top of this bedrock of, of this uh, the nemesis system which is this dynamic system where you you gradually convert orcs to your cause and then betray uh the fortress leader and take the fortress uh, in climactic scenes uh, which involve cutting things off orcs a lot it's so violent <laughs> it's remarkably violent and i'm not going to lie it 
the combat animations are amazing. <laughs> I think if you're going to go for you know a game about chopping stuff up, then it just go all in with the just the viciousness and the cruelty of it, <laughs> um, which <laughs> they've managed to do spectacularly. And the, the combat system, I really really like it. It's not as um, kind of it's, it's very much based on the Arkham combat system, which is very much about countering and then kind of keeping your combo up uh, so that you can use execution moves, or, which in Batman meant breaking uh, people's legs and things. But in Middle-earth Shadow of War, it means just chopping a, a dude the fuck in half. Um, and then watching as they spiral away in slow motion and uh, orcs around you run away and flee in terror. Um, not going to lie, it's very satisfying. <laughs> it's extremely satisfying. <laughs> and then um, you sort of, there's a, a kind of really weird sort of brainwashing element to it, where you are a man called Talion who's extremely dull. Um, and just has no discernible personality, uh, but he is he is uh, possessed by the ghost of an elf, who's an absolute prick. <laughs> he's like a, yeah, he's he's called Celebrimbor, and he he crafted the rings of power that corrupted men and turned them into the Nazgul, and also gave Sauron his uh, you know his way in to world domination. Um, <laughs> his foot in the and, door. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and he's in your, in your head, and the Italian will be saying stuff like, we need to save the city and make sure that the people of Middle-earth are safe from the Balrog that's been unleashed. Then Kenneth Brimble would be like, no, we need to get the rings. <laughs> and <laughs> you just get these, like, just, they're both so, so, like, black and white, which kind of like Lord of the Rings is, right? Uh, you've, yeah. Your heroes, uh, you know, it's light versus dark, and that's, you know, a thing that's baked mm. into loads of fantasy, unfortunately. Um, but uh, the way it's depicted in this is, I don't, I'm not sure if, whether it's supposed to be funny, but it really is. Um, what I think is definitely supposed to be funny is the orcs themselves. Uh, the amount of voice work and voice acting they've done and like contextual barks is absolutely astonishing. Because um, there are so many different characters you could run into, and they're sort of like semi-randomly generated. Uh, so it will put like a first name with a, a, a kind of title. So you might get something like Borgu, the Snowflake. Um, and when you run into them, uh, an announcer announces their first name and this is a very surreal thing because it's like where did that voice come from <laughs> so you, you you encounter them there's a big crash zoom into them um and then it'll tell you that they'll do kind of like basically a wwe wrestling intro <laughs> they'll just sort of like say who they are why they're angry why they hate you uh but they're very surreal like there's one who just sort of giggles <laughs> so normally they do a speech but there's this one guy who just giggles like which doesn't stop um and so i i, I recruited onto my side and made him my um my bodyguard so i could summon him whenever i was in a fight and he just never stops laughing it's really sinister and he does it like um you know the new joker film it's like him it's really it's really strange but then another one is just uh i think there's a guy called just <laughs> we mosey the tasty <laughs> uh, mosey the tasty <laughs> um and his his gimmick his wrestling gimmick to shout tasty 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 all the time (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs) who came up with this idea and then there's there's the orc that just really really fancies you uh and is obsessed with you like the ranger and it's just like it's almost like giggling uh adolescent uh, um obsession with you and it's so surreal the kind of if i don't know what's going on in that writer's room (laughs) to make these characters but that colliding with the serious sort of like po-faced seriousness of the Tolkien universe has been an absolute delight to me in the last couple of weeks I've been playing it. 
Uh, and I'm almost at the end. It's absolutely enormous. It's like 40 or 50 hours if you want to do all the stuff. Um, and that combination of just slapstick humor, cockney <laughs> voice actors, uh, absurd statements, uh, and extreme violence has just been has been right up my alley. I've really, really enjoyed it. What drew you to it at this time of lock in lockdown? I think it's just um, there's something very satisfying about having an open world map or several open world maps in this case uh, with loads of icons on that you just gradually tick off. And you're just like, mm. yep, I did that. That's really satisfying. That's good. Uh, and then uh, there's some really nice versions of that in this game. So uh, in each location, there are six kind of uh, elven invisible scrolls on a, on a wall somewhere, and you can use your elven vision to see it. And um, you find a word, and then there's like a there's a, a vault in each area, and you assemble these words to form a completed poem, and then that opens, and then you get a cool helmet. Um, <laughs> it's it's just a nice way to present that that kind of collectible, uh, that kind of you know that the urge to collect and, and complete. Uh, the loops are just short enough that you you like yeah this doesn't feel like too much of a slog. I could just go over there and get the other two, and then I can unlock, unlock this new thing. Uh, and it's, that's just like a very satisfying loop, I think. Uh, normally, I have no time for it at all. But I think there's something about lockdown that makes that kind of repetitive action. I could listen to a podcast to sort of clean up some objectives uh, yeah. and just kind of get that sense of ongoing, endless progression uh, that's very addictive. So you been you said you played some other things. Yeah. So uh, I've been con- contrasting this with the Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, which I was drawn to oh, wow. after the announcement of new Assassin's Creed. And I've actually like I got really far in it before, but then just kind of ran out of steam because it's an enormous game. It's yeah. really big, uh, and it takes for me it takes a long time to get going until you actually are powerful enough to actually roam most of the world and start hunting down um, those special targets. Uh, but um, I got it on uh, PS4 this time because I've got like a, a HD, sorry, a 4K TV with like HDR capability, and that game looks astonishing. It just looks absolutely beautiful. And I can't believe it. it's still like a miraculous technical achievement when you go into your bird high above and just sort of fly around seeing the mountains. And there's hardly any pop-in or streaming. I don't know how they've done it. Uh, it's just incredible. And I've, I've been on holiday in Greece for the last few years and uh, might not get to go, to go on holiday for a long time now. So mm-hmm. it's almost filled that gap for me where just seeing that sunlight, which has been so carefully modeled, that particularly bright Mediterranean sunlight, uh, and the, the kind of the islands uh, again, just beautifully portioning up challenge uh, across these across this archipelago. Uh, that again has just been really satisfying, and uh, has made me very happy. I have to say, I mean, I, I appreciate I haven't, I haven't played a, a ton lately that I haven't already talked about, but I've had exactly the same experience from Hitman. Um, oh, I've heard which of is people also, say that too. Yeah, it's it's uh, which I, maybe even Tom Tom Francis said this as well. That is a surprisingly great holiday game. Because you mm. are playing a man on holiday. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he goes on holiday, he meets a stranger, uh, and then he has to leave. The Hitman 47 holiday story. Like, it's, you know, um, it's very good. Uh, and I have, I, I, I don't know what quality it is of an in-game environment that makes you feel like, oh, I'm somewhere nice, as opposed to, you know, I am... Uh, traversing a beautifully art-directed landscape, but it's not. I'm not there, and I, th- I don't know what exactly that quality is. But obviously, for me, it's have it. for me, it's sunlight. Um, mm. That's the one thing that does it for me. So, for example, mm. in The Witcher, The Witcher Three has like very extreme and kind of high fantasy 
sunset conditions they're extremely red uh, which can happen in real life but it, it, just that makes me realize it's not a real place um, mm. whereas Red Dead Redemption 2 for example the sunlight really seems to be really carefully modeled in terms of the precise tone and color and brightness and how it moves through smog and how it moves through clouds um, that feels makes the whole world more convincing to me uh, just that one simple thing yeah. yeah, it's volumetrics, isn't it? Mm. That's the that's tick. Absolutely. I wonder what, to what extent that's generally true as well. Maybe not even that technically complicated because I have found recently, I don't know if this is possible, but I feel like I have a rainy Animal Crossing island. I do like, too, yeah. Yeah, it rains all the time or it's misty all the time and then occasionally sunny. And I sort of, even though it's summer at the moment or coming into summer, and I've sort of convinced myself that like I have, I have Cornwall. Like that's where I am. <laughs> like... It is beautiful, but it's often very wet. And like, but I genuinely feel a bit bummed out, like playing it. I've played it less on definitely on days where it's rainy because it's just, even though it doesn't materially affect anything, it's just like, oh, shit out. I'm just going to stay inside um, <laughs> in the game as well, which is weird. Um, but yeah, not to interrupt Assassin's Creed chat, but it's kind of interesting whatever quality of, you know, obviously we're all missing some sunlight at the moment, but it's interesting that you, you have something in, in the way games present it does still tickle the same part of your brain that also wants vitamin D. I think, yeah, I, I, I think that about Hitman, like Miami level, like, yeah. So having been to Miami, it's almost the, the pure whiteness of the sunlight compared to what mm. it's like here. Like it, there is a different quality to it wherever, where, wherever I go in the world, it does feel different. And maybe it's a combination of that and kind of in real life, humidity and environmental factors of the way the sun actually hits your skin and feels different um that creates these associations but just the visual appearance of that in a game sets that off for me it's almost like a, a smell and how that can yeah. trigger extra sensory yeah. stuff um and it's amazing that a lighting condition can create that reaction it's the uh, the earliest i can think of this really happening for me is is in half-life 2 because the the lighting mm. in that mm. that cold sallow light it just it feels like a particular kind of day uh that you get maybe in like it feels like a cold autumn slash winter day yeah when when the sky is really clear and uh, it particularly happens in bath because you've got all these um bath stone buildings which is a sort of yellowish stone and the way that the light strikes those those buildings is very kind of it's half-life 2 lighting is what i always think mm. as i walk around yeah the um the other thing i think that has been really struck me about it maybe i don't know this sounds too glib but like um every hitman level particularly has a real sense of being like you're often at an event or something big is happening and obviously in, in hitman 2 they got the crowd tech going so you're often in these like big packed kind of expo like the, the Miami level is literally a racetrack and an expo or like uh, a busy neighborhood or a party or a fashion show or all of these different things and genuinely playing it in, in and I don't want to you know I'm not gonna this isn't some you know editorial I would wing off about how Hitman has answered my desire to be around other people uh <laughs> in the time of in the age of COVID because the things that I the, my principal interactions with people have not been what I would aspire to uh, to get back to <laughs> after this. I'm not pr predominantly not looking forward to walking up to people and going, "I'm Tobias Reaper," and then um, stealing their pants. Um, that's mostly not what how that's going to go. But um, there have been certain parts of it, like the um, the Thailand level, the the hotel in Bangkok, where it properly set off my like wanderlust and my desire to be somewhere else where other people are doing something or there's some event on which would either be answered by a press trip or, or whatever it would be like you know the 
the sort of like, oh man, I kind of wish I was in a beer garden outside Gamescom this summer or something, which normally I'd, I'd, I'd have thought I was over. But it is funny that like, you know, the sense of place is sufficient enough to make me miss real places, which is hmm. probably deeply sad. But yeah, I don't know if that's something you could necessarily get from uh, a fantasy game. Um, but but yeah, like it's it's definitely just want to go stand in a bar letting clues of how to murder someone percolate around me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you played anything else? Uh, I've also been playing Jedi Fallen Order, um, but that's just because uh, May the 4th happened, and so everyone got obsessed about Star mm. Wars. And um, also Rise of Skywalker came out on streaming service, and I watched that. And I was like, quite like something better than that, actually. <laughs> so I'll, go, <laughs> I'll go back and play this video game that is, while it's, like, I'll stress it's like, it's nothing that special, but to me, uh, I've described it on the site as like, just a couple of Sundays of good, solid, entertaining lightsaber mm. and that to me is absolutely fine yeah. uh, and th th that's mission accomplished as far as i'm concerned uh, so I've, I've just been just loving that lightsaber uh, to the extent that while it was just loading uh, i was idly looking on my ipad for like replica lightsabers <laughs> oh no <laughs> which is death which is a road i'm not prepared to go down but thanks mm. to the game for actually like putting me in that headspace where it's like mm, yeah i could have this um and yeah so it it, it activate all my sort of nerd love of star wars uh even though it's like there are better star wars stories and games for sure like go play kotor and kotor 2 uh but this is a kind of adventure with characters that don't just pointlessly move around for no reason and actually have yeah. motivations it's like yeah that's good that's good and some good lightsaber fights that's all that's all yeah, I want. it's certainly not the worst star wars story in a game oh no no like, no it's pretty good yeah it's it's fine it's fine uh, again it's it, all of the these three games have just been pure comfort food for me which is why mm. i always like haven't started new games uh partly because not a huge number of new games are really coming out apart from uh, xcom and gears tactics which are both great uh but in terms of actually just wanting to go around worlds and explore them and hit stuff that's kind of where i'm at at the moment <laughs> what have you been playing martin i've been playing things that i don't sound nearly as satisfying as the experiences tom's been having so i feel, <laughs> I feel weirdly jealous <laughs> having listened to him um I have I have I have liked uh, at least one of the games I've been playing, which is um, called Filament. It's a puzzle game um, made by uh, a developer called Beard Envy, which is just just quite a cute name for a developer, I thought. Um, but the central core mechanic of it is uh, that you are a little robot with a light bulb on your head, and uh, as you walk through a level, um, a big tube spools out of your ass, your robot ass. Uh, this tube is anchored to one point in the level, and around the level are poles, and you have to uh, touch poles, uh, sometimes in sequence, uh, with the tube from your ass, and uh, and then you have once you've touched all the poles, uh, the poles light up as this this tube touches them. Uh, a door opens, and you then have to go out of the level. But doing so is tricky because you cannot cross the path that you've just created with this spool of ass tube um so then you have to work you end up building the sort of cat's cradle of tubing which you then have to somehow navigate your way back out of again um in order to escape the level and it does a lot of interesting things with that i mean that that is the the, the core mechanic but it it 
adds lots of different kind of caveats to that across the course of the game. It seems huge, actually. I don't think I'm anywhere near finishing it, and I feel like I've been playing it for quite a long time. Um, maybe that's just because I'm not very good at it. Um, but uh, sort of on top of that puzzle layer, there is also a sort of narrative layer where you are um, a rescuer come to help a stricken spaceship. Uh, you don't have any voice lines, but there's somebody on this spaceship who's talking to you through the intercom and directing you to unlock these various different ship systems, which are somehow paralyzed. And the unlocking procedure is what facilitates the... Starting to get a little dicey up here on my own. Hello? 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 Lost you for 10 seconds there. I heard, I heard someone talking. Yeah. I didn't. I'll cut you some slack, though. You know... That's weird. Hey, was one of you playing the trailer? Oh, shit. Is that, is that audio coming through my PC? I'm really sorry. I thought I'd play the trailer <laughs> music just so I could see what you were talking about. I'm really sorry, Mike. I didn't realize... <laughs> I can't... I, I'll put it this way. I can't hear the trailer. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> so strange. So... That is strange. I am very sorry. I'll close that. I just thought I'd see what you visualize what you were talking about. Uh, oops. Continue. That's okay. Welcome, mystery voice actress from from that game. Um, as as you may have heard from that, um, uh, the the character you're speaking to is this sort of uh, spunky ship uh, navigator, and the sort of dialogue you have, it's it's sort of weird. Like when I started playing it, I didn't really think that the game was calling out for any sort of narrative layer like I, I quite like the fact that you're walking around this spaceship it's beautifully rendered it's got this it's not um flat shaded but it uses a very simple color palette and then everything has this like, sort of uh lovely kind of gradient on it to give it a kind of really kind of voluminous feel so everything feels really kind of chunky but also smooth and it's very nice um and it has this sort of cartoonish style. So I kind of like aesthetically like it, but then I didn't really feel like like it, the puzzles themselves really required some sort of meta explanation. Mm. Um, and the the narrative doesn't really go hard on anything. Like it, it, you think it might lean into z sort of zaniness because uh, there's a, quite a good joke about capture recognition in, in like the first uh, five minutes. And, and the character you're speaking to is sort of ribaldly kind of ribbing you. Um, but it doesn't, it's not like a laugh a minute script. Uh, and it's also not obviously serious in any particular way. It's not like a, a grave or a deep emotional journey thus far. Um, so I wasn't quite sure really why it existed. And it just seemed to be sort of occupying a space in, in, in the game, which could have been probably better spent on other things. But um. As I've got further in it, there are really quite nice, interesting things about the 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 sort of fictional setup they've got uh, on this spaceship. The kind of relationship between the crew, as you as you explore this space station, uh, while not doing puzzles, um, you sometimes find just logs uh, of their email conversations and things like this. And it's just it's just nice. The, the, the characters seem quite characterful, and they have they have pleasant discussions with each other. I'm not kind of like d super drawn along into some grand mystery. Like there is obviously a mystery about how the ship became uh, stricken in it, in, the, in the way that it is, but um, I, I don't really I don't really have any kind of clues that I'm following. 
if you mm. know what I mean. It doesn't feel like I'm being propelled uh, towards some sort of discovery. I'm just simply ambling, ambling through this stuff. But as I got further, I found actually that the puzzles are more annoying me. Than, mm. <laughs> the puzzles now feel like an interruption to the narrative rather than vice versa, which is a sort of switch around I didn't really expect. But um, like I say, it's pleasant. It's very pleasant. The puzzles are, are sometimes too hard uh, for reasons I think are not necessarily fair. Sometimes um, you can solve the puzzles theoretically. Like if you were drawing out where these poles are and then on a piece of paper and you were trying to draw a line all the way around them that didn't touch itself, you could do that. And then yet you try to do that in the game and you find that there's just the the collision box for your character is slightly bigger than your character appears to be and you just can't quite fit through a gap. And that feels really a very bad way to fail these puzzles because you're like, well, right, yeah. I kind of did solve it, motherfuckers. Mm. <laughs> um, and then there are some, there are some uh, sort of puzzle uh escalations that to me just don't make any sense like uh, and it's not like one of these games where you just sort of the the fun is is figuring out the the the, the purpose of the mechanics as some puzzle games are um they attempt to tutorialize things but there's just one puzzle sequence and i've actually done all the puzzles in it now but I'm no closer having done them to understanding what the, what the puzzle mechanic was, <laughs> which is uh, which is a curious situation to be in. Yeah. Um, but I, I do like it. I, I do recommend it. Um, so there you go. That's and the other filament. game I've been playing... Yeah, Filament, yes. Um, and the other game I've been playing is uh, Close to the Sun, hmm. which was just released um, on Steam uh, this week. Although, apparently, uh, it has been out for a year on the Epic Game Store, but nobody noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was at Res last year, so, yeah. Yeah. That's it's more a, a year ago. first-person horror adventure, which has taken uh, a fair bit of flack for looking a lot like Bioshock. Um, oh, yeah. And having played it now, I can say that that flack is absolutely deserved <laughs> um it is i mean it, not only is it uh a horror game with uh, art nouveau um jazz age sort of aesthetic but it's also set uh on a giant folly by a power power mad man in this case instead of andrew ryan creating a free market utopia under the sea you have Nikolai Tesla creating a, a haven for uh, free science investigation uh, in a giant boat on top of the sea. Um, boat is called the Helios, which is the name of the sun god. Um, and a lot of the chapter titles reference Daedalus and Icarus. Mm -hmm. And uh, Icarus flew, quite famously, too close to the sun. Oh, um, and... You can imagine that maybe Nikolai Tesla's science experiments are a bit like that because they've they've tried very hard to go very high, but then they've got a bit melty and then they've fallen out of the sky. And um, uh, as with all science experiments that go wrong, uh, they've created monsters. Um, <laughs> That's uh, what happened to Icarus, wasn't it? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's 
it's not it also in one way it is not like bioshock because um bioshock despite all of its uh uh pontificating and uh you know its reputation for taking on uh big philosophical things it was at its heart uh an action game it's a it's a first person shooter through and through and um this this sort of answers and 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 you know it's that has also uh, led to criticism Bioshock people often say you know wouldn't it be better if Bioshock didn't have uh, the shooting and I can tell you no no it wouldn't be better <laughs> uh, uh, because Close to the Sun is is it's sort of a first person investigation game you're walking around picking up items and reading them and you're being talked to over an intercom by your sister and other uh, antagonists um, but I don't know. I, maybe you, you feel differently about this, but I, I feel like uh, walking simulators, as as they've been called, they sort of rely on maybe a, an emotional intimacy with the characters, some sort of like an emotional reality that you can empathize with or are interested in. And I'm thinking like Gone Home and Firewatch. Uh, having spent time with those characters you you like them and you you want to hear them talk and i think that's more important than having a plot like close to the sun has a, a plot like there's you know there's a it's again you're on a, a strangely stricken ship and you have to work out why it's been uh struck down in this way but since your interaction with it is just sort of shuffling through environments and occasionally running away from things it just doesn't sort of the, the the cogs of the narrative never really bite for me like and you never really find out who your character is that much mm. can i be a big wanker yeah <laughs> i would suggest <laughs> that it sounds like the where um where a lot of walking simulators find their effectiveness is in the fact that they're about relationships rather than plots really um, mm. That is true of almost all of the ones that you just named. It's definitely true of Tacoma, which is literally about following the relationships forwards and backwards through different different uh, yeah. scenes to find out whom bonk and when. Um, <laughs> and other space facts. Um, it's true of uh, Edith Finch as well, to a greater or less extent, or maybe, but maybe slightly less so. I think. And then I think that leads me to the the flip side to this, where the exceptions. Like Dear Esther, for example, is about a relationship, but one that's already taken place um, that you're not necessarily involved in. Um, but it is also very, very intimate because it feels like it's a performance directed very specifically at you. It is so stagey. You know, it is not realistic. You're not exploring. You're exploring the psychological landscape, not a literal place where something has happened. Right. Um, although right. I see it dips you in and out of real moments or quote unquote real moments. Uh, and therefore it's very much about your, your relationship with it. You know, your forward mm. movement is the, is, is your side of this kind of, uh, d discourse that you're having with something that's multi-layered and it's, it has a relation, you know, there's a, it is discursive in the sense that the landscape is talking to the music, is talking to the narration, is talking to the timing of certain reveals and your own kind of internal processing of that, like art do. Um, sometimes, I think the thing about walking um, simulators. Sorry, Chris. No, go um, on. Uh, specifically, is that they're free from the tyranny of having to constantly create player objectives, which is mm. what so much game dialogue is about. It's about saying you have to go here for this reason, uh, and we've only got like 
10 seconds to tell you this because you're really impatient because you the player are normally quite impatient about this sort of thing whereas yeah. someone relaxing into the context of a walk, like dear esther you're not there to speed run it you're there to kind of absorb it and that gives uh, the writers and the performers much much more room to influence you and actually create those relationships whereas actual games like in bioshock i didn't really care about anything about bioshock um i love the world and it felt really novel but i wasn't playing through it just to get to know uh, any of the any of the people who were talking to me on my headsets and i didn't really right. care about the ghosts um because it was all about getting to the ne- next objective getting to the next action scene uh, so there's different pressure on the writers i think in those different contexts mm. yeah it's, it's interesting you say that because this this uh game does have a huge number of gamey feeling objectives it is go here do this go here do this go here do this whilst never actually meeting anybody because mm. you never meet anybody in in uh these sort of games uh and the fact that you don't have very many verbs while you're doing that is is a constant sort of irritation really it feels like there's just not enough going on um that's interesting yeah. interesting thought because i guess the flip side to this would be uh when you're talking about slightly more sedate games with narratives would be something like mist not to go way back into the into the you know cd rom drawer here but like um you know those are games that are sort of you know pretty thick with story but where you are basically being sent a, a to b and occasionally getting a clip of fmv and I kind of wonder what the, obviously those are puzzle games primarily, but I do wonder kind of what the difference is there as well. Like there does seem to be a, a, a way in which games tell adventure stories, but without the combat and other kinds of action game trappings that we're used to, but it hasn't been around for a fair old while, right? Yeah, I guess I guess it's relying on atmosphere to sort of um, scare you into yeah. thinking something's happening. Um but but it's it's not terribly successful at that. It's, it's slightly frustrating that it goes where it does because... Once you get off onto the boat uh, initially, um, it's I mean it's, it's a beautifully uh, made environment. Like uh, however much it lifts from uh, Bioshock in terms of Art Nouveau stuff. Obviously, Art Nouveau predates Bioshock, so it's a legitimate thing to, to use in games. <laughs> yeah, you were allowed jazz, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and they've done uh, an amazing job of crafting those that space. When you get into the the kind of uh, the docking bay of of this massive mega boat, uh, and, it, and it's it's you know only partially illuminated, but you get a sense of this gigantic cavernous space. That in itself is is like a, an, an impressive environment to be in. And then uh, almost instantaneously, you, you have to go through whatever passes for customs on this boat, and you break into the little uh, office room where the uh, the customs official would have been had he been there and you see um pamphlets about suspected spies edison's spies who've come <laughs> to infiltrate and, and you know possibly sabotage um tesla's operations and i thought that was really where it was going to go and i i even kind of like screenshotted various files so that i could then refer back to the names that were mentioned on them um and there that stuff does sort of exist in the background but it's really not what the game is about. And I thought it was going to be much more of a, uh, from from that opening, I thought it was setting, teeing up something interesting about, you know, uh, personal acts of espionage and sabotage and deception. But in fact, you know, you end up being chased by Griblies. Um, and <laughs> there's seemingly no real reason for the Griblies to exist. Like <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the thing that has gone wrong on this, ship is Nikolai Tesla's uh, 
research scientists experiments with time um which is incredibly hand wavy even by the standards <laughs> of uh time shenanigans in video games we've i hmm, i was going to mention a a, a uh, a TV series that I know we've some of us have watched, which is related to some of these themes, but I won't because actually, if people go to that afresh, they'll have a better experience yeah. without realizing what it's about. But uh, we've I, just coming from something which has done it half well to this, which doesn't really have anything to say about time. Seemingly, there's there's a reference to some sort of uh you know self-fulfilling prophecy in it but but as a result of some sort of time problem just monsters have emerged and the game has actually no way of explaining this at one point your character says yeah but why the fuck are monsters coming here and and one of the characters on the radio says yep well yeah <laughs> if you mess around with time monster's gonna show up and you're like well i don't think you've really i don't think you've really got yourselves off the hook narratively there <laughs> yes we have <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I i i don't know i don't know if i'm going to even complete it i have to say i've also found it annoying that i i had to quit uh, the game earlier to do something else and it doesn't save frequently it saves every chapter and the chapters are quite long. Oh, I don't well. know why how you get get away with that <laughs> in this day and age. Mm. Yeah. That's what happens when you fly too close to the sun. <laughs> I should say that I don't hate the writing in the game line by line. I think it's pretty good and the the voice actors uh do a great job. There's a particular sort of um, side character called Aubrey, who's played, in fact, by Wolf Kahler, who um, played lots of Nazis. He played Nazis in uh, uh, one of the Indiana Jones films. You recognize him if you saw his face. But he does a, a, a really good um, line in being slightly sinister older man, which is, uh, which is pretty good. But I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's like the... They've obviously got good material there, but it's sort of all shackled to what is quite a, a hokey plot ultimately, and I feel they could have they could have done a lot better with that material. Hmm. Shall we do some questions? Sure. Wrong answer. No, no. Oh, because we're going to do a quiz. Are we? Yes, we are. What? We are going to do a quiz, and it's inspired um by two things the first thing is um a game called postscriptum day of days uh, which uh the name of which amused me so much that i asked in our discord channel if anybody could guess what genre it was set in and <laughs> nobody could it is in fact a world war ii set first person simulation shooter as it calls itself uh but it looks like battlefield um <clears throat> And it is also inspired by the fact that we have uh, a soundboard in this piece of software. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So, two um, episodes, and someone's finally got a soundboard. What have, what have we become? <laughs> so, uh, in honor of Postscriptum, uh, this quiz is called Postscriptum, piss craptum, more like. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to read out some names of uh, real games, and you have to guess what genre they are in. Um, 
I think I, I'm feeling that um, both of you just being generally more aware <laughs> of what's going on than I am may have a bit of advantage because some of these games may be famous and I'm just too oblivious to know. Um, so Nevertheless, I'm not, not I'm not like the the competitive one or anything. But how do we indicate that we would like to answer the question? Um, I, I, shout? Give, I think uh, mm, this is a good point. Uh, yeah, just shout. <laughs> it's not like there's going to be a prize. So, so okay, how about good. Chris? You. Chris, you honk, and I will wonk. <laughs> that seems fair. Yeah, honk, honk, honking, walking paradigm has never failed in quizzes before. All right. So the first game name is Nero, spelt N-E-R-O, as capitals uh, interspersed by full stops. Colon. Nothing ever remains obscure. <laughs> Wonk. <laughs> go, uh, go for it, Tom. Um, hidden object game. Wrong. Oh. There's no. Unfortunately, there's no. Uh, I don't have a soundboard noise for <laughs> for wrong. For the one of the two things that can happen. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, honk. Yes, Christopher. <laughs> yes. Honk. Are we looking for the genre of like what you do in the game, or the genre of the setting? Um, I will accept any clues, really, uh, right. as, as to what's in the game. Um, but I, I'm I'm going mostly for the the mechanical genre. Uh, dating game. Wrong. It's a story-driven first-person game with puzzles. Oh, that's um, all games. And ironically, it is also the studio uh, that made Close to the Sun's preceding game. Oh. Uh, ironic, because it did indeed remain obscure. Um, <laughs> sorry, guys. Uh, number two. Civil contract. <laughs> Honk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Chris. On Dating my game. <laughs> I'm afraid not. Uh, one. Oh. <laughs> Tom. Uh, match three. <laughs> it's a modern themed role play adventure game set in the vast open world environment of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I love that if game you get three. right, then you can't play your sound effect. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. There's, there's only seven of these, um, but there will okay, be a bonus good. bonus round at the end. So it's technically eight questions. Um, game number three is called "I'm on Observation Duty 2: Colon Timothy's Revenge." Punk. <laughs> this is actually guessable. So go on, Chris. Um, puzzle game. No. Fuck. <laughs> so was that a fuck or a honk? That was a wonk. That was a wonk. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, uh, disaster simulator sim game where you respond to disasters in some way. Probably come down. Uh, no, but that's not that's not a bad guess. It's actually a Five Nights at Freddy clone. Ah, right, right, right. Oh. So some some of these are slightly more obvious mm. than others. Yeah, uh, obvious. <laughs> game number four: Zariah colon Age of Shattering prologue. Oh God, I feel like a. I can't want Probably. kids. I don't Fuck. know. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. Zariah, or most possibly Zoria, colon, Age of Shattering, prologue. Wonk. <laughs> yes, Tom. <laughs> um, third person action game, anime style. Um, hmm. Honk. <laughs> Chris. Collectible card game. No. Shit. Uh, it was a turn-based tactical, party-based RPG experience. 
Um, which I feel Tom got halfway to. Mm. Maybe. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't think anyone won that question. Okay. <laughs> Next game. Bakamono dash Demon Brigade 10 men unit Wonk. 01. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> Japanese beat him up. Close, I think, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, it's, it's Japanese. Honk. Chris. Bullet Hell Shooter. It's an anime-themed VR mech simulator. Ah, no. tits. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, game, I forgot which number this is. Game number six, I believe. Cloud Meadow. Honk. Chris. VR Painting Tool. <laughs> no. Uh, Wonk. Uh, Tom. Uh, some sort of farming simulator. A Harvest Moon style thing. Yeah! <laughs> I mean, you didn't get that it was actually a pornographic farming simulator in which you fuck monsters. What about, you know, farming simulator's <laughs> <hell>? good enough. <laughs> Close enough for jazz. Close enough for something. Hmm. <laughs> Game number seven. How do you like it, Elon Musk? <laughs> uh, honk. Chris. Submarine combat game. <laughs> Not a million miles from what the, from the truth. Wonk. Chris. Uh, Tom. <laughs> Sorry. Child naming simulator. <laughs> Just give your kid to the most devastating they possible and see how they go out <laughs> into the world <laughs> it's a uh it's a uh, a russian space program simulator much like kerbal space mm. uh <clears throat> program and so the bonus question which is the only way you can uh redeem yourself chris yeah. is to guess which uh game other than cloud meadow uh had uh nudity in it can you recap <laughs> the names for us Nero, nothing ever remains obscure. Civil contract. <laughs> Honk. <laughs> yes. It's Nero, nothing ever remains obscure, because the title <laughs> implies that I get to see your bits. Incorrect. Shit. I'm on observation duty too. Timothy's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> the nudity. Uh, there you go. I'm afraid. Uh, well, I'm not afraid. Well done, Tom. Thanks for a great much. job. Would you like to hear the um, the trumpet noise again? Uh, yes, give it to me. That is clearly an organ, not a trumpet. <laughs> yeah, 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 I don't know. It's a good point. <laughs> good quiz, Marty. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, I, I hesitate to ask, but do you want to question some questions? <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Uh, our first question uh, comes from Evan with a fun story. Dear Prawn and Lobster, I lately got into Offworld Trading Company in one of the tutorial missions. The game introduces you to the production of steel and explains how iron oxidizes and decays over time and how turning it into steel solves this problem. In my head, I thought this was a game rule that meant that my iron reserves would decay over time. So when I played, I tried to convert as much as possible to the much more durable steel. I felt kind of embarrassed when I realized this was just flavor text and not actually something I needed to deal with in the game. Uh, do you have? Did you have any misconceptions about on the way that a game is played that changed the way that you played it? Uh, cheers, Evan. I have to admit, personally, I can't think of something springing to mind, but I did think this was a 
uh, a fun instance of a game simply trying to teach you a fact and uh, thinking that you would try and put it into practice. <laughs> Our next question comes from Miller, who writes, um, Dear Gull and Albatross, I missed the gulls in the RTX special. In the gull episode, I thought they had been piped in as soothing background noise while discussing the island's animal crossing. Uh, I guess a question. Have the sounds of your own environment ever had a positive impact on your experience in a game? Like waves crashing coinciding with a maritime setting or a sudden bang from upstairs at the right moment of a horror game? Thanks for the pods, Miller. P.S. Could you just include a little bit of gull for me? Yes, we can. Thanks to the power of the soundboard. And open source sound libraries near you. <laughs> what a soothing sound. It is a soothing nice, sound. Have any of your video game experiences been rudely interrupted by uh, or enhanced by a sudden noise from elsewhere in your house or body? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say never ever enhanced, I'd say. Only ever <laughs> spoiled. Uh, yeah, by a can't... crash of thunder or a particularly loud emission of gas. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I've been frightened a lot by people when I'm in like in a press demo with headphones on, someone walking up behind me and saying something. But that's not really to do with the game, it's mostly just because of my own fear. That's not an answer to this question. Moving on. Uh <laughs> Uh, moving on to Daniel, who writes, uh, Dear Great and Grobar, in RPGs, mimics treasure chests, treasure ch treasure chests which attack you are always more difficult than the surrounding enemies. Why? And that's from Daniel in Iowa. Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Because you deserve to be punished. Why? For your hubris. Why? For, for just slavishly expecting rewards from box-shaped objects. Why? Because like, you should, you should, you're just too predictable and, and deserve a harder challenge as the result of being Why? I don't know. <laughs> is, is this what it's going to be like having a toddler one day? Why? <laughs> Are they? Who knows? Next question. <laughs> um... Patrick writes a very long email, a very long email indeed. So much so that we won't read it out, but thank you for for, for writing. Patrick um, writes about the issue of uh, revisiting old games and the discourse surrounding it, and particularly remakes. Um, goes on to describe uh, the what he feels is unnecessary about the, the remake of the Gothic uh, RPGs in particular. But a lot of this uh, revolves around uh, two key ideas. Basically, one is the notion that uh, whether games can age badly or whether they were always uh, bad, basically, and the games are simply approved and that this tends to revolve around some key, uh, a few key uh, touchstones, either graphics, 
either particularly missing or lackluster save systems or things like turn-based combat. Um, and what modernizing actually means, uh, particularly drawing attention to the um, the way that quote-unquote modernizing Gothic seems to revolve around adding more kind of uncharted style set pieces rather than actually kind of addressing the appeal of the original. Um, and yeah, so do the terms um, aged badly or modernizing a game actually mean anything? Should they be shunned? Should their meaning change? Um, and uh, similarly, what does it actually mean to, uh, to to modernize a game and and so on? Uh, kind regards and stay healthy. Patrick from Stuttgart. I think there are legitimate ways in which you can modernize uh, games. And I do think certain games, if not age badly, then are superseded by uh, the advantages that game developers have today. So, I mean, I, I think the Resi games are a good example of... <clears throat> Uh, developers mm. reappraising uh, the idea of, for example, of having fixed cameras in environments. I mean, there's nothing inherently evil or wrong about having fixed cameras, but they did it that way because of the limitations that they encountered in rendering those environments on the on the hardware they had. And given the opportunity to to not have those limitations, then I don't see why developers wouldn't take advantage of that when when looking back at these games and trying to re-release them for a new audience. I think, I think maybe people, the... Oh, go on, um, I think when people talk about modernization in a positive context, often it's just basic access accessibility stuff, i.e. decent tutorials, um, good UI, uh, tight, tighter controls that are easier, easier to access. Uh, whereas I think what Patrick's referring to when he's talking about the reangling of Gothic as a series is a kind of uh, is a business decision to try and make something more mass market. And that's to me that's not necessarily modernising so much as just an instinctive behaviour that businesses will display if they yeah. think they've got a hit and they want to make it, it draw more fans in. Uh, so I think it's it's more I wouldn't I think modernisation isn't quite the right word for for that for what he's describing I think. Well, I think this is where the word remake is useful because mm -hmm. like, I mean, obviously, uh, well, useful and not like the, the, you get hung up on the idea that you're literally uh, going back and remaking a game. Whereas I think a better way to understand it is it's more like what would happen if we made this game now? And I think in a positive sense, that can be useful because it can give people access to stories or ideas in games that are harder to access now, either from a technological point of view or because of the, uh, assumptions of, of a previous era being superseded, particularly, as you say, in, in terms of accessibility. Um, and what that relies on is there being something essentially appealing about what that game was in the first place that people want access to. And I think this is actually very true of, of Final Fantasy VII, which I'm looking forward to playing uh, pretty soon, actually, partly because I you know, loved that game at the time and I kind of want to revisit its, its the feel of its world and things, which I think is still kind of you know, a notable bit of video game world building and, and you know, uh, fantasy. And so, but I am unlikely to get the same pleasure out of the original as I am now. So I kind of welcome people literally remaking it, um, it with modern production values. I think this has a tricky relationship with nostalgia, um, where what you're getting out of it is, I don't know, some complicated mishmash. Because a lot of the time people are nostalgic for games they haven't played. Um, and a lot of the audience, particularly for the Resident Evil remakes, and definitely Final Fantasy VII will be people who've heard about this game a lot over the years, but don't have an essential connection to the original. And I think then the challenge for remakes is to convince new audiences 
that there was always something here that's actually resonant that it's not good by virtue of its novelty at the time or something like that um it actually surprises me that resi is as successful it is at that because actually there's nothing kind of like staggeringly original about resi 2 particularly but there's still something compelling about that setup um and the gothic one is interesting i've only played the first gothic game a bit but i do not remember a single thing about its world really and i don't necessarily think that's a problem uh you know the email sort of explains it's a good thing to be kind of thrust into this world with no real over explanation or to be allowed to track your own course through it but i can understand maybe why a developer would see that as an issue where they need to suddenly uh throw in what would be called sort of more modern production values in terms of narrative staging and introductions and, and things like that why <laughs> <laughs> Does our next question come from Abdul Rahman, who writes, Dear Custard and Caramel, lately I decided to sign up for the Epic Store, given the free games they give away every week, and that some of them are of interest to me. As a result of this surplus of games, I found myself not sticking to any of them. I haven't finished Hyperlight Drifter, despite playing for seven hours, and I struggled to get back to Concrete Jungle, even though I bought that from Steam on Tom F's recommendation, despite only playing it for three hours and really wanting to get back into it. So to my question, have you ever had the problem of abandoning games that you enjoy or wanted to go back to, but can never muster the will to press play? How did you get around to that problem if you did? I know Tom S has this problem with RPGs, but I'm talking about relatively shorter games. Thanks for continuing to do the pod in these troublesome times and sorry about the long email, Abdul Rahman. Um, so uh, there's a PS here, which we should get to first, uh, which is my interest in the Warhammer 40,000 universe has been ignited lately as a result of watching a video by YouTuber Luton09 explaining the world for beginners. And I wanted to ask Chris or any other pod member with an answer, Tom, which Warhammer books would he recommend to a Warhammer native naive mind such as mine. Um, I'm assuming Black Library fiction here rather than rule books and codices and things. Tom, do you have any Black Library recommendations off the top of your dome? Because I could probably rattle off a few. Yeah, I wouldn't do a, 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 a 40k one, but I would start with the Horus Heresy to kind of catch mm. up with the original sins of that universe and why it is the way it, how it ends up in the, the 40,000 context. Yeah, I think I think the first three Horus Heresy novels are pretty solid sci-fi books in their own right. Um, they're quite heavy going. That you know, uh, but it's a it's about as Warhammer as Warhammer gets. Uh, I think if if you wanted forty k specifically, i.e. the the setting of the main game and and so on, then it's the thing about it is or the other advantage of Horus Heresy is it's a series that tells our story over 54 books, but what are you going to do? Um, uh, that is still going. Uh, well, it, it Heresy has ended, but it's entered its final phase with a different series. Um, whereas 40k fiction, there is no one story of that setting. There are little sagas told within it, um, but it goes all over the place. Um, I would point you towards either um, the Gorn's Ghosts novels or the Eisenhorn novels by Dan Abnett, which are uh, good. Um, and in terms of more access, like maybe more kind of less series based stuff, um, Spirit of the Emperor by Aaron Dembski Bowden is really good. And the Black Legion series, which starts with Talon of Horus by Aaron Dembski Bowden, um, is also very good uh, in terms of just being sort of consumable stories about big pauldron spacemen and their troubling dads. I've um, not read this series, but I've heard great things about um, The Beast Arises, which mm. I think is three parts. Uh, self-contained story about an orc warlord and uh crimson fist space marines have to fight him 
or it might be Imperial Guard. Anyway, it's, it's supposed to be great. Yeah, there's also a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily hit that bar. So <laughs> for uh, sure, going, yeah, going with going with recommendations, like it's a reliable source of 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 pulpy uh, science fiction. But I think the good stuff that explains why that universe is cool uh, is it's good to to follow some some very specific series and and see if you like it. Hope that helps. How do we go about? Uh, passing, getting back to smaller games and balancing having too many things to play it seems like a perennial issue for people. I think you can get like library paralysis, which is what I get with yeah. like, Netflix all the time, and um, it's what I have in my Steam library and everything, and my Epic uh, account as well. Where there's so much stuff that I feel like I want to sort of snack on everything instead of yeah. properly sitting down, and devoting my attention to one particular experience and trying to get the most out of it. Hmm. I have found personally that because obviously I think I encounter this problem quite a lot because I end up playing games a little bit for the podcast and it's quite hard to get back to them afterwards sometimes um, after playing the first three or four hours or something I tend to try and use my Steam favourites list for this like I try and only promote games to that category if I'm really intending to go back to them and they sit in there alongside perennial games of Destinies and uh, Magic the Gatherings and, and other things I play a lot. Um, basically, so that I'm kind of they're the first things I see, and and that also helps the list feel more manageable. Because honestly, once a game sinks out of that favorite zone, it probably takes quite a lot for me to go find it again. But mm. them's the breaks, I think. Because most of the time, you just think I could play Hunt, <laughs> and then you play Hunt. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Marty? I don't know that I have this... I don't see it as a, a problem, really. If anything, I'm trying harder to make peace with the fact that I won't play these games again. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with the idea that I, I play something for as long as my it holds my attention, then I move on to something else. Yeah. Uh, I, I do feel guilty about it, but ultimately, um, it's not it's not really a bad, bad thing, I don't think. Yeah, I think maybe... I mean, it's interesting how... Like... When I was a kid, I didn't feel like I had to complete all the games that I had because I couldn't finish them. <laughs> they were hard. And so, you know, you got used to playing the first three levels of Desert Strike over and over, or the first level of Desert Strike, I think, over and over again, and that being the whole game. Um, maybe partly because games were much more scarce. But I think at some point, the idea that I need to have completed a game to have seen it like a film has kind of crept in. And I don't know how to shake that, really. Hmm. But I think you're absolutely right. I think play as much as you have fun playing and then stop. Because that's what differentiates games from books or films, right? Like, Yeah. You know. But also, it. as you say, any anything that occupies your time is just taking valuable time away from the swamp. And uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what rational human mind would willingly engage in that kind of laughable scenario? <laughs> Like, uh, you know, valuable time in the swamp, like last week when we sat alone at what we thought was a very clever ambush point for 45 minutes, convinced <laughs> that any minute now, any minute now, the people with the bounty were going to pick up the bat, were going to pick up the bounty and come our way because whichever way they could go. We posited every possible scenario, tense gunfights in the distance that must be happening to explain why we weren't doing anything for 45 <laughs> minutes. Um, and then uh, we broke cover and got shot and died. Yeah. 
and that by, was but weirdly by people who explicitly decided to shoot us rather than the bounty the singular bounty carrier who ran 360 degrees around them very slowly <laughs> <laughs> very yet, frustrating you and me they both killed with one pistol because we're great at the game um yeah yeah it was good but nonetheless what i'm saying is that's an extremely valuable use of your time <laughs> and exactly <laughs> people who pour their hearts and souls into beautifully crafted short form indie experiences um will never compete with with uh i don't know sitting for, in a bush sitting in a bush discussing the failings of the british media in a time of crisis <laughs> <laughs> waiting for a cowboy to steal a spider's soul anyway <laughs> anyway Fergus writes, Dear Kreps and Croc Monsieur, uh, since you've been talking a lot about XCOM Chimera Squad, it's cheap as London chips, and I love me some turn-based squad tactics. I thought I would pick it up and give it a go. The last game of this type that I played was Warhammer 40,000 Mechanicus, a flawed but very fun little game. They did away with cover and hit chances to instead focus on being the most OP toaster that you can be. I loved that game, but was looking forward to having some more original flavor XCOM. So imagine my surprise as I found myself after watching my squad to the snake miss a chain of 80% plus shots before being gunned down that I suddenly realized, wow, I am completely over this. Something about the combination of having seen what a game like this can be like without the chances to hit and the constant disconnect between what I'm seeing on screen and what the numbers are telling me, a shotgun literally clipping through an enemy's head only having an 80% chance to hit being an example, I realized that I'm over having to deal with RNG in these kinds of games and I don't think I'm ever going to go back. My question is, have you ever had a game break the spell of a genre or mechanic for you in the same or similar way? Another example for me was Resi 7 reminding me that horror games don't have to be about hiding in cupboards all the time. Keep up the podden and stay safe, Fergus. Uh, P.S. An offhand remark by Pip on one of the old pods about Netrunner being good got me into the game and I've been loving it ever since. So good, good job, Pip. Um, so obviously there's two questions here. One is about... Uh, realizing that you are over a genre and the other is probably about the role of rng and xcom tom i'm just going to guess you have an opinion about this hmm yes oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, i think when dice rolls are used well they create drama but that doesn't necessarily mean it creates drama in your favor and i think that's the problem with games video games as opposed to pen and paper rpgs for example where mm. uh a dice roll going against you can be just as entertaining if not more so than one that goes for you whereas you're only only ever punished for those dice rolls in xcom um, right there's no cool result from a missed shot for example exactly you don't like so if you miss and then become enraged and get an extra action or something occasionally that it would soften the blow and um but but XCOM is not like that. XCOM is just like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, you failed. <laughs> now you're exposed. You're gonna get shot. Um, which is definitely brutal. Also, I think like it's kind of a question of variance as well. Like you could get yeah. on the sort of bell curve of possibility. If you're in the super shallow end on the left for one particular for, for an hour, that's just a bad feeling, and nothing about nothing about the game can help you with that. Um, like it's just going to be a bad experience and I, I completely accept that that's the flaw of totally chance-based systems um, for me like the randomization provides a lot of drama I think that uh, Chimera Squad is particularly punishing because you only have four people in small right. environments and though your guys can't really die uh, and it's hard for the game to actually end once you get the right upgrades 
you can uh, a combat scenario can be ruined by just a couple of dice rolls in that context. Um, so that those bad feeling outcomes have, feel sharper and happen more often, I think, in Chimera Squad, uh, even compared to like XCOM 2, which is also a punishing game. Um, yeah. But it's it's always it's that balance between the drama of like that the, the tension of being like, oh almost got him um, and the feeling of yes got that shut off uh, that is kind of you're weighing that against the possibility that you just roll like shit and have a, a bad time <laughs> um, right and that's that is so it's so such it's the core of the design in XCOM so I think if you took that out and made it certain it wouldn't be the same game uh, and I'm glad that that exists and I'm glad that Mechanicus and other games are actually like sort of responding to that and saying yeah this is suck actually let's try different things um mm. so i think we all sort of win but I, I understand that frustration for sure i think there's a few sides to it i think obviously you hit the nail on the head like and the subject of variance and how we feel about variance and what they offer versus how humans can't handle it it's like a massive subject that mm. we've talked about quite a bit on minis monthly for obvious reasons those are dice games um i think the one point i would add to this is something identified in this email which is that um Variance by itself is, is fine. You can build a game around dice in any million different ways that you want to. Um, but there's a question where the types of variance and the the amount of chance of failure in the system matches up with the actual theme and the specific action being simulated. So, um, you know, because on one hand, uh, you might want games with, where, you know, where attacks are very chancy, but if the theme of the game as it is in this case is small groups of ostensibly elite soldiers fighting, uh, you know, relative, like, you know, fighting enemies with uh, recognized work, firearms and things like that, then suddenly, you know, chance to hit becomes a very, you know, it, it becomes a thing where there's an easy disconnect between what you can see and what the numbers are telling you. Um, so, you know, like in the example, shotgun blast at point blank range, only having an eighty percent chance to hit, which might be mechanically necessary for some reason, mm. uh, for broader mechanical reasons, it doesn't feel right because the theme isn't matching up to what the numbers are representing. Like Phoenix Point did a better job at this in terms of reconciling the fact that people have an expectation that guns basically shoot in a straight line and will hit things, um, with having some 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 bullet spread and some more kind of simulated ballistic stuff in order to kind of uh, not specifically to take RNG out of the equation out of the equation but to reframe that rng as something that the player can see and interact with um i think this is also like one of the reasons why it was smart for mechanicus to take that out because that is a game that is predominantly about laser weapons basically and it's going to feel weird if you're missing all the time or even one in five times with them um like for example in a game you know a mischance in a baldur's gate game or a fantasy rpg feels that's weird because swords and as i am always banging on about in, in games are almost more kind of representative damage dealers a lot of the time and you kind of accept readily that like oh i swung my sword but they did dodge out of the way um that's an easier fantasy to buy than i fired my shotgun but i just fired it in the air for no reason um and so i think maybe they've and i think that you come up against that in normal xcom all the time because it's also you know relatively short range kind of skirmish game but maybe it's particularly apparent in Chimera Squad just because it's even more zoomed in. Yeah, I think there are definitely definitely presentational issues with the way damage is reflected. Um, but I also think that the thing with Chimera Squad is, so chance theoretically over time with enough dice rolls should yeah. even out and actually give you the odds that you've been presented with. Uh, of course, not guaranteed. You could roll a one every single time. Um, like That could easily happen. Uh, but 
if you if you have loads, so let's say in the average XCOM two encounter, you make uh, fifty dice rolls, and then maybe in one room in Chimera you make ten. Right. Is that is the the the, the sort of um, the way odds are going to be represented? The chance is going to actually flatten out. It's very different in those two scenarios. It's like poker players, like um, poker players play the odds knowing that they're going to lose X number of times, but they play so many games that over the course of their career they make bank. Um, right. A similar concept applies to just taking shots in XCOM for sure. Um, so if you've got more squad members, there's more combat, longer uh, scenarios, then you're more likely to see those odds go right for you than wrong. Whereas in a very short scenario, you could easily you know, you can easily get that, that bad experience. Yeah. Has anyone found that uh, to, to to the actual question? An example of a game kind of breaking the spell of a, of a genre or a particular mechanic. I can't remember what it was called. Is, is that a Creed Syndicate that's set in London? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So in that one, you can straight up go fucking Predator Invisible as one of the special abilities. And that broke the whole fantasy for me completely. <laughs> um, right, yeah. Uh, because, like, again, it's the presentational thing, whereas in Odyssey, there are little elements of fancy, little elements of kind of... Uh, mythology that actually allow you to do things with that character whereas that like uh, gruff London gangsters uh, in that context just be able to just predator cloak it's just nonsense <laughs> like yeah the, it didn't break the whole genre but it broke the fantasy completely for me and uh, I was going to yeah. take the game seriously that's a good example and that is all of the questions that we've got time for I'm going to pass the buck of this outro to Martin cool okay if you'd like to send us a question, you can do so at creatingcrowbar at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at creatingcrowbar. All these, all these uh, podcasts, that's what we're doing, are <laughs> uh, uploaded as videos to YouTube, and you can find other nonsense uh, by us there as well. The address for that is youtube.com slash creatingcrowbar. Thanks, as always, to our wonderful Patreon backers. Uh, you can back us too, if you wish, at patreon.com slash creatingcrowbar. Or you can simply join our immeasurably lovely Discord community. They are actually wonderful humans, uh, the link for which is on our website, creatingcrowbar.com. And uh, that's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Topless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've been uh, Thomas Orkbane, a.k.a. Uh, Tom Senior. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good. Honk, 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 honk. Android Beam. Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I can't even say your name. <laughs> Android Lloyd Webber. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> Android Lloyd Webber. <laughs> ah. uh, go Beam. for it, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise I'll shut up. Beans. <laughs> that was it. That's what yeah, I'm trying to say. Uh.
Uh, and Thomas Orkbane, The Phantom of the Orkborough. <laughs> I watched the sequel to The Phantom of the Opera that aired a few weeks ago. Love Never Dies. Yes, that's the one. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, except I just, sometimes fucking, it does. I fucking passed the fuck out like after about 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it, this is a sad sequel. No, oh. it's not great. 